Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Uh, Very happy to be joined live with a uh, special guest who actually needs no introduction, but he's about to get one anyway. (laughs) He is a good friend of mine. He's also a professional poker player and a TPE pro. He's also the author of the hot new poker book called Play Optimal Poker. You know him, you love him, at Thinking Poker on Twitter, Andrew Brokus. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Clayton. I'm very excited to be sitting here in person recording a podcast with you. <laughs> this is uh, turning into one of my favorite traditions of the summer. I know. Maybe we can even do another one before all is said and done. I would enjoy that. Uh, my original plan for this episode was, you know, you and I have been uh, chatting about how things actually haven't been going that well for you. You've been running bad. You don't want to like tell everybody a bunch of bad beat stories all the time. So you try to keep it light on Twitter and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, behind the scenes, what's been going on is that when you need a card, you don't get it. And when your opponent needs a card, he or she gets it <laughs> for the most part. That's kind of or I get the on. card that I thought I needed and <laughs> <laughs> turned out my opponent already had the card he wanted and it was better than mine. <laughs> Those are the worst. I hate when my card makes me a really good second best hand. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk to you about you know how to cope mentally with uh, going through a rough stretch, especially when we all get here to Vegas for the summer. We're excited. We think we're going to make millions and billions of dollars and, and all of that. Everyone's got all that optimism, much like a baseball team in uh, March before the season starts. <laughs> Everyone feels like uh, you know the team has a chance. I promise that'll be the last baseball reference, by the way. That one was for Nate, if he's listening. Um, so, But then something happened uh, that kind of changed my plan for the podcast because you actually finally found a bag yesterday. I I put chips in a bag, but honestly, we're still not that close to the money. Like, and and I think that's a funny thing that you can think of it as running good. You know, like there was, you know, there's a spot where I I doubled up and I was only a small favorite when the money. So you could say like I'm running good. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, if I end up bubbling this thing, I would have rather lost a flip. (laughs) You know, like you don't really know whether you were running good. And likewise, you know, if if you lose a flip in like level two and us. like that's not anywhere for, from from my perspective anyway that's nowhere near the worst possible outcome i understand there are some people like if you're more a recreational player you may actually be thinking of it as like i just want to play this tournament for as long as i can for a fix like i know that i'm maybe not a favorite when i enter this tournament but i enjoy playing poker and i want to play for as long as i can and get my money's worth exactly so i don't want to be dismissive of people who come at it from from that like i understand for some people it is devastating to go bust in like level two of, of a tournament but from like an hourly rate perspective the, the way that you know, I or many professionals are going to think about it. Uh, yeah, going bust in level two is nowhere near the worst possible <laughs> outcome. And uh, I'm, I'm not foreclosing the possibility that this tournament uh, is yet going to be, um, it could easily be my worst of the summer in terms of number of hours played without a cash. For sure. I mean, if God forbid you happen to bubble. <laughs> so as you can tell, I'm not one of those positive vibes guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that over the many, many years that you've been playing this game, uh, you've probably just, you've learned that, 
you don't want to get too high or too low, right? I, I think that's a big part of it is, is having the experience. I mean, people can, you, you can know intellectually, okay, well, if I enter a tournament and 15% of the field cashes, even if I'm one of the best players in the field, which many, obviously most people are not going to be, but even if you are one of the best players in the field, you know, maybe you're cashing 25% of the time. It's still not that hard to have a string of like 12 tournaments where you don't cash. Like this, it's just not that hard to do. But to understand that intellectually or to actually, like you still always believe, and this is just how our, our human brains are wired. And to some degree, it's good. Like, I think you need a degree of optimism to play poker well. If you're constantly thinking, like, oh, this bluff's not going to work. He probably has me beat. He probably has a, I'm going to lose the flip even if I get the money. <laughs> like, I mean, you're not going to play well if you're always expecting things to go wrong. So I think you need that optimism bias. But at the same time, it does set you up for disappointment because you never really believe that the run bad is going to happen to you and until you've really been through the ringer. Like, I mean, I, I try to convince people, and I think it's to some degree possible to learn from other people's experience but i think most if not all people really do have to experience it for themselves and the first time it happens to you is is probably the worst well i remember maybe five or six years ago i went through a string of 37 consecutive tournaments without cashing wow which is really really hard to take you start to feel like maybe i'll never cash again and it's silly to think that because of course in each individual tournament you have, you know, anywhere from a 10% to a 15%, or if you're an above average player, a little bit more uh, percent chance of cashing, depending on where the tournament is and how many players they pay. Uh, but that does mean that with variance being what it is, anyone, any of us could potentially go through a string much longer than that. Mm -hmm. All things are possible, right? It's extremely unlikely that I'll ever go through 40 or 50 tournaments again without cashing. Uh, you know, consecutively, but there's nothing in, you know, in black and white that says it's impossible because it certainly is possible. But the other thing that, that sucks is after you've not cashed 30 tournaments, it's still not that likely that you're going to cash the 31st. No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they call that the law of independent trial. Exactly. Yeah. Like your chances of cashing number 31 are still only 15%. Right. But they start to feel like less than 1% exactly, after you yeah. running bad. So, uh, by the way, after that long stretch, which I'll never forget, I actually made three final tables in a row after that. So it's just, there is no pattern, right? I mean, to the extent that, that luck has no pattern, there's no pattern. But... I think it's important to talk about this stuff because as players, uh, sometimes we can create a pattern where there isn't one and doing so can cause us to play suboptimal poker to paraphrase your book title. Um, so how do you manage that? Um, I wish I had interviewed you yesterday before you made a day two, but, and as you said, like you're not even close to the, being in the money yet. As we record no, this, quite, by the way. Believe, I'm still convinced I run much worse than everyone okay, else. Okay, all right, good. Don't worry, we, we've not shattered my okay, illusions about that. Okay, all right, that. good, good, good. As we record this, by the way, it's uh, Saturday the 15th, and Andrew will play day two of the double stack tomorrow it's and i'll have one by the time you're listening yeah by the time so it's gonna listen. feel ironic to hear me talking about running yeah that. and we'll have this for the archives where <laughs> next time i have to add one more thing to your resume that i give at the beginning of the show bracelet winner andrew okay. brokers so yeah but you know seriously how do you manage um those emotions and that uh just not getting into a bad frame of mind when the cards seem to be not cooperating 
I think having realistic expectations is really important. And, you know, I have been through the ringer a couple of times and I guess I will say like, it doesn't change my immediate emotional reaction. And this is something that surprises me a lot, but I still am very susceptible to feeling like, you know, when things have been going well for me recently, that I'm much better player than I am. And when things have going been going poorly for me questioning you know like oh do i even know how to play this game anymore like do i um so it's not that i don't experience you're uh, only human yeah yeah but I, I i do like because i've had the experience of doing it before and i think like keeping records helps also so you can look back and see okay it actually is only because especially with live poker i mean to not cash like 12 tournaments in a row that i mean that could be weeks if you're not playing that much poker but it's in, in, in terms of a sample size, it's not very large at all. Twelve tournaments and, is nothing. And if you play online poker, that could be a day or less. Less, um, yeah. So, so I mean, the, just the idea of like I've been running bad for weeks doesn't really mean anything. You really need to think of it in, in terms of like hands or something like that. And I think zooming out and looking at a, being able to look at a larger sample because you also don't want to deceive yourself. Like I mean, it is if if you sorry to make this personal like if you whiff thirty six tournaments in a row, <laughs> like there's a decent chance you're not that good at poker and. You know, you have a big enough sample size to be able to zoom out and say that truly was anomalous. But like to experience a result like that, like there's a decent chance that is indicative. Uh, so like I think having like a longer term sample that you can look at and see a big picture and say, you know, do I, um, is it reasonable for me to to believe that I'm going to be a favorite in the tournaments that I enter, despite despite how I feel? Because I guess what, I guess what I'm really saying is like how you feel is going to be very based on your short term results, or for me it is anyway. And you don't want your decision making to be based on how you feel. Yeah, your stupid feelings should not enter into the into the into the equation but or to the extent that they do i mean so i like i don't there are times i mean I, i'm a little more inclined to take days off like if, if i'm feeling frustrated i'm going to be less inclined to re-enter a tournament uh like the the win tournament that i played mm -hmm. the other day it was 1100 i ended up firing four bullets in four hours um at least three of those four bullets i felt like you know the spot where i busted was completely uncontroversial you know two of them i lost flips one of them i lost ace king to kings it, it wasn't spots where i was because this is what really gets me like i can handle you know losing flips getting bad beat that's fine like i i know that that stuff happens and it's the, the play is like unimpeachable in most of those spots. There's like, sure. and anyone would get the money in there, or you know, anyone whose opinion I respect anyway would, right. would get the money in there. Um, the the ones that really bug me are the things that cause me to question decisions that I made because it's entirely possible to run bad in terms of you know, for instance, making bluffs that have a positive expectation, especially, you know, like, it, it, like if you're making a pot-sized bluff, you only need that to work 33% of the time. So one of the things that means is that, like, it could be a bluff that you're going to lose more often than not, and it's still a profitable play to make. But that's the sort of thing, like, you could easily have a string of, like, six or seven of those in a row where you get called, and you can start to question, well, does that mean I'm bluffing too much? And there might be no lesson there whatsoever. It could it purely just be running bad. Like, you're just consistently running into the strongest part of your opponent's range. And that's exactly as much of bad luck as it is if you get it in as a you know 67% favorite and you get sucked out on or something. Like it's, it's bad luck in precisely the same way. But it's much harder to convince yourself that it was bad luck. And you do have to question, am I picking my spots badly? Am I bluffing too much? And if you respond the wrong way to that and you go into the next tournament you play and you say, well, this bluffing just isn't working out for me. I'm just not bluffing anymore. Like that's not a that's not a good reaction to have. Right. And and similarly, I think it's a mistake when players kind of have a mindset of, well, it's too early in the tournament for me to take a coin flip. 
uh, I don't want to risk my stack at this stage of the tournament. You know, uh, I know that survival is, you know, the essence of you know, tournament poker, but not, I not think... Not during the re-entry period. The <laughs> well, that's true. If you're not scared to fire again. Um, but yeah, let's assume, let's take re-entries out of the equation and assume it's one of these no re-entry kind of uh, tournaments, as some of the WSOP events are, mm-hmm. and others are unlimited re-entry. So yeah, that could affect the way you play. Um, but assuming it's, uh, you know, one and done, I think having the mindset of, well, it's too early to take a flip, even in spots where there's way more than the amount of money in the pot that would justify flipping, I think is a kind of the opposite of that. I don't want to bluff. It's a, well, I don't want to take a flip. And then they'll fold uh, a hand that they perceive to be most likely a coin flip hand, say like pocket nines. Like they put me on ace king, they turn over their nines and they show me it's too early for me to take a coin flip. And, you know, there's nothing that says I have to have ace-king. Right. Why can't I have sevens or eights or some other hand? Um, not to mention, like, it's not really a flip. Like, nines is about a 55% favorite against ace That's <laughs> so, like, true. That's you know, even I, a separate problem. But No, that's right. Though, yeah. We do kind of shorthand. We call it a flip. But actually, the pair is a slight mathematical like, favorite. Like, if you were buying a stock and you could be guaranteed 5%, like, oh, that's a yeah. pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and if, you know, if you have something like jacks against ace-king offsuit, you could be 57%, right? Depending if they have your suits or not. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot to think about with that. But you know, I've always considered you a, uh, a player that's really, really strong, obviously, and you understand the fundamentals of the game. You understand, you know, you have obviously background in game theory that's strong enough to write a book about playing <laughs> poker with an eye towards game theory. But one thing that's always impressed me about you, Andrew, is that you... Uh, also focus on other aspects of the game. You know, like you have your uh, very public love for Tommy Angelo and uh, you know, all of his work and mindset training. And, and, you know, you've done a lot of study of poker tells and trying to improve your live reads and things like that, even though you come from, I guess, originally an online background. Right. Right? Yeah. So uh, that's something that I've always found impressive is the way that you uh, always try to work on other aspects of the game rather than just saying, I'm an expert in this part of the game, trying to become, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, a complete player is important. So as you've been running bad or you know things have not been going your way, one thing you mentioned is you, you, you take more time off. You don't feel like, well, the only way I'm going to get out of this rut is if I keep playing and play my way out of it. Yeah, and in fact, I think thinking in terms of getting out of a rut at all is is a problem. So I mean, I, uh, I wish I could remember. This is probably a Tommy Angeloism, but I apologize to whoever came up with this. If it's not <laughs> him, um, or to him because I'm going to paraphrase it. But you know, streaks exist, but only in the rearview mirror. You know, like, there's no such thing as being in a bad run. Right? You never know what's going to happen in the next tournament that you play. And this is even more true for tournament players than it is for cash players because there is your know, tournaments are so top heavy that it's like you can you know, lose or min cash 50 tournaments straight and then suddenly you have a win and you're up, you know, three times the net amount of money that you invested over that stretch of 51 tournaments or whatever. Um, so I mean there there really is no such thing as I am running bad. There I have been running bad. Like that's you, you can establish that's, that yeah. I have been running bad. You have no way of what's going to happen knowing what's going to happen the next time that you play interesting so the difference between i am running bad is a present tense like a mindset right i'm things are going bad for me right now 
I have been running bad is a lot more passive and a little more detached from this is what's been happening, but we don't know what will happen today. You know, it kind of reminds me of the smartest marketing uh, casino genius in the world who created those screens that show you the last 12 spins on the roulette wheel. Yes. You know, look, they've all been red. They've been nine out of 10 were red. And then half the players will say, well, I'm going to put a lot of money on black. (laughs) And the other player will say, no, it's a red table. I'm going to bet it all on red. Uh, Obviously, what has already happened doesn't really affect what's about to happen. Um, I know in Super System, Doyle talks about. Now, I will say at some point, like if you could see a board and it had come red 170 times at once. Well, I mean, there's like, something wrong with that wheel. Exactly. <laughs> at, at some point, it becomes more likely that there's something wrong with the wheel than right. that, like. <laughs> right, yeah. no, that's true. But, but probably the casino would have looked into that. Yeah, like, they would have noticed. Well, before it, it got too. to 170. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I wouldn't take like the eight or nine or however many numbers they show you now as any kind of. Uh, you know, representative sample of that right. of that wheel in the long run, um, but yeah, in Super System, Doyle talks about people who don't believe in streaks or oh, when a, oh, this, you, this is my favorite passage from Super System. Oh, you know, can you help me with it? Yeah, so, I, so I I think I actually tend to misquote this too, but it's something like you know. So first off, Doyle Brunson believes in in streaks, of course, and is essentially wrong but i'll make the the best case that you could make for it in a second but yeah the way he puts it is is so brilliant and so indicative about like how this book is written and, and like the poetry of this book he says something like uh the scientist will tell you that there's no such thing as streaks but what does he make a hundred thousand dollars a year <laughs> i've made over a million dollars playing poker <laughs> so, so that proves it you know yeah. Um, so I, I think like to the extent that you can make a case for, for streaks, and I think the way that, that Brunson actually kind of articulates this, and, and I think this is kind of a real phenomenon, is that when you've been winning pots, people, it's in some cases consciously, in some cases unconsciously, are less likely to like mess with you. Um, they're less likely to try to bluff you. They're just going to play more straightforwardly against you in general. When, when a decision is close between folding or calling, they're going to err on the side of folding. When it's close between like raising or calling, they're going to err on the side of calling. Um, and this is going to be more true of less good players. Like the better the player is, the less they're going to be influenced by this sort of thing. But everyone's probably influenced it by some degree. That like when you're winning, um, people are a little less inclined to, to tangle with you. And also you might be more inclined, like I was saying before, how important sort of confidence and optimism is for playing well. You're probably going to be more willing to put trust in reads that, you know, at least if you're a good poker player and your reads are worthy of trust, you're going to be more inclined to give them the trust that they deserve when you've been running well. So I think in in that way, it's plausible to me that good luck can sort of uh, engender more good luck. And, and likewise, you know, bad luck engenders more bad luck, where if you've been losing pots, people are going to be, they're gonna, like, they're going to see you as uh, consciously or unconsciously as like someone that they want to be getting involved with, someone that they want to mess with, someone they want to disbelieve. And it may cause them to play better against you as a result of that, to play less straightforwardly. Well, I know it's a tournament podcast, but I have to just take a quick little uh, you know, diversion to my cash game spreadsheet. And I've noticed that one thing I'm very proud of about my cash game spreadsheet is the longest sessions that I have, the 10-hour, 12-hour, even a couple of 14 or 15-hour sessions, were all winning sessions. And the shortest sessions I've had have been losing sessions. And I think it's because it does influence my decision uh, whether to quit or keep playing. If I'm losing, even if I feel good, 
it might be wise to just go home because uh, my opponents might perceive me as being a bad player. Now, I mean, I can always use that to my advantage. Like, well, they think that I'm a fish, so then I can maybe value bet more. But it's very hard to leverage that. Like, if you have yeah. a bad image at the table and you look like the donkey, it's very hard to make profitable plays. It's harder to make profitable plays than it otherwise would be. And likewise, as you mentioned, uh, when you have a big stack and people don't want to mess with you and they perceive you as a winner, maybe they even see you as a pro and they don't want to donate to the pro or, mm. or whatever, uh, that's good that's good for your image so i try to make those sessions longer and if you can look at your own uh you know the, for the listeners if you can look at your own spreadsheet and the column of hours and check the ones that are the the, the biggest number of hours did you win in those sessions because i think most players they try to get unstuck and i think that's a mistake obviously in tournaments this doesn't count because you, you can't decide when it's over. <laughs> well, I, but I think the, the idea of stuck does kind of apply in tournaments. And I think it's actually, it's a really dangerous thing. People get attached to a particular stack size mm. in a tournament. And, you know, like you, you, I mean, people contact with contact me with this and probably we get posted in, in the TP forums from time to time also, where people will say something sort of vague, like, I often run up a stack in a tournament and then I end up giving it all away. Right, right. And I mean, it's entirely possible that you are sort of making mistakes or something. But I mean, that's also, it's just like the nature of tournaments. I mean, it, it's not a, a, a just a stair step where you just sort of gradually accumulate chips and like your stack just gets 5% bigger, 5% bigger, 5% bigger until you're at the final table. So they email you, it was going up. Why did it go down? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I mean, and like, and they, they think that they see a, a pattern. Maybe they even do see a pattern. And like, I mean, it is sort of cyclical. I mean, you're most tournaments, you're not just going to go wire to wire chip later. Like right. you have to play whatever stack you have in front of you right now. And there's lots of ways that a big stack can turn into a small stack and it can happen through a single bad beat. It can happen through a single spot where you got money in bad through no fault of your own. It could happen from a mistake that you made. It could happen from just a run of bad cards where you you know, just haven't you just had to fold a lot pre-flop and, and the blinds have increased and your stack has gone down. It doesn't matter how it happened. If you get in your head, I'm supposed to have such and such a stack, and you hear that all the time, right? Someone would they'll lose with. Uh, their their kings will lose to ace king and they'll look at those 50,000 chips that are in the other guy's stack and they'll say those should be in my stack right i right. should <laughs> yeah. have 120,000 right now and i think that's a really dangerous way to think because you should already be doing everything that's plus EV to get chips. So if you decide you're going to start playing more differently, because if you're like, okay, well now I need to get back to this, or I need to accumulate chips because the blinds are starting to run into me or something like that. You know, so if anything new that you do above and beyond what you were already doing to try to get chips should by definition be negative EV because you should already be doing the plus EV things. So you can't just decide, oh, my stack was getting short and I wanted more chips. So I just went all in with five D suited. Um, cause, because cause I, I should have. I wasn't happy with the current size of my right. stack. Yeah, yeah of course, that's a bad mindset. And just even using language in your mind, like I should have, that, that's, a, that's entitlement language, right? Yes. And you're not entitled to anything. I mean, it, you, if you bought in to the tournament, 
you are entitled to, I guess, a fair deal, you know, not being cheated. You're entitled to, like, that's, that, I mean, I don't know about fair, but like a lot of these dealers at the WSAP, you have to watch not out of cheating, but they're just extremely inexperienced. They don't know what they're doing. And yeah. like you, I mean, you have to accept if you're playing in Las Vegas in the summer, especially at the Rio, like there are not enough really good dealers to meet the demand for dealers. And you are going to have to be a little more aware of and, and you're ready to assert for yourself if you think the dealer is um, handling something incorrectly. Like, I mean, even that, I would say, is kind of not something you're entitled to. It is something that you have to like. I mean, maybe you feel like it should be part of the package, but the truth is it isn't, and you do have to be prepared to advocate for yourself. Right, yeah. It would be fair to ask for competent dealers, but I guess we're not exactly entitled to it. <laughs> we definitely don't always get it. Um, yeah, but you, know, you just kind of reminded me, like I play the main event every year because 8,000 people play the main event every year. And I don't believe that there are 8,000 players in the world who are better uh, in that tournament than I am. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I'm willing to I'm willing to bet $10,000 that I'm right. <laughs> um, so likewise, they need 100,000 dealers or something crazy like for all the tournaments in yeah. Vegas in the summer. And they then just, figure they can't tap. It's not like they can go to the win and say, give us all your most no, qualified dealers. The there. win needs all their dealers too. <laughs> yeah. And Aria needs theirs and Venetian needs theirs. And, yeah. I mean, they do import them from elsewhere in the country. But then people also complain about how high the rake is. And it's like, well, if you want better dealers, it's going to mean you're going to have to pay people to come from Maryland Live or wherever and spend eight weeks in the middle of the day. Like, those people are going to demand a lot more money than if you get some you know, recent immigrant who doesn't really know how to handle cards, but they're willing to work a lot more cheaply. So like right. you can either have low rake or you can have a lot of, uh, of a really experienced dealer. I mean, frankly, I'd rather have the less experienced dealers. So you're saying more rake is better. I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying less experienced dealers. <laughs> Lower rake. But yeah, I mean, to some degree, yeah. like, that, yeah. like the rake is going, like there, there is a relationship between the amount of rake that you're paying and the quality of experiences that, that you're getting. Yeah. All right. Well, so I want to get to some hands, but before I do, um, how's it going with the book? Are people buying it? What's going on with your book? Um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. You know, I, I actually have not been sweating the sales real closely oh, for, for some of the same reasons that I don't sweat my stack real closely in a, in a tournament or cash game or whatever. Like I'm trying not to be too results oriented with it. And I also feel like promoting the book, especially right now, like with you know, summer WSOP stuff going on, like putting time into promoting the book is not the most plus EV thing that I could do. So I'm trying to get the low hanging fruit of, you know, using my Twitter account to talk about the book. And when people are already sharing with me, hey, I've been enjoying the book, you know, clicking retweet on mm -hmm. that, talking about it in, in a context yeah. like this. Um, but yes, yeah, so I've not been sweating the sales super closely. Um, but, you know, I've, I've gotten really nothing but positive feedback from people. I mean, people have found... Uh, I mean, there there's some errors in the book that are, I mean, some of them are just typos. Um, one or two of them are, are th I mean, none of it is stuff that like undermines the like central argument. Like there's not stuff in the book that's like, where it's like telling you a, a wrong thing. But, you know, there, there's, there's some stuff that uh, I would have preferred to have caught before it went to, to publishing. And I'm going to be doing my best to kind of fix that going forwards. Um, but I mean, no one has been like, oh, I regret purchasing this. Or like the, the feedback has all been like really, really 
positive, which I'm, which I'm grateful for. And it's exciting to see people, you know, people are sending me pictures like on Twitter of, oh, here, look, I got my book. And, uh, you know, someone came up to me to get the book autographed, which was an awesome experience. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun. Like, I, I think maybe the last time I talked to you, I was kind of grumbling about the amount of work that, <laughs> that had gone really. into the book. Not, and... not really grumbling, but, yeah, you were definitely uh, kind of in the middle of finishing it up. And, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on the happy side of that now. Yeah. Of, like, the, the work is mostly out of the way. And now I'm getting the fun part of yeah. having written a book and, and being a published author with a with a paperback and a beautiful looking paperback. Book. You know how many people are walking around this planet right now saying, "I could write a book someday." And the percentage of those people who actually complete the project, as you have done, is I'm sure is below one percent. It might even below point one percent. So just congratulations on accomplishing that incredibly arduous task of actually completing the work of writing the book. But then I also have to congratulate you because the book is phenomenal. I mean, I learned so much from reading it. And there are things in that book that I now understand that I thought before I already understood. And I realized I was wrong about certain things, game theory things. The book explains those things in a very clear, very concise, very entertaining way. And also kind of turns light bulbs on above my head that I didn't even know were there. So I'm a huge fan of the book and I wish you so much success with it. I hope everyone out there buys it and none of them read it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid of how good at poker some people are going to get um, from combining that, you know, the work of reading and studying your book with, of course, all the other work that poker players have to do. I mean, this book is a, a tool that could really help you understand how to play poker practically practically using game theory concepts and you know there's there always seems to be a disconnect between okay well there's game theory which is like this ethereal kind of metaphysical <laughs> like not real thing that robots do and then there's like really playing cards which is what i'm going to go do right. and this book helps connect those things better in in a way that no one else has even tried to do that I'm aware of. It seems like there's the GTO guys and then there's the exploitative guys. But what I learned from reading your book is that GTO is exploitative. Yeah, those are not really distinct things. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole point of learning game theory is that so that you can exploit people. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and and let me say, I mean, that that means a lot to me, especially coming from, from you, you know, from, from a person who... I mean, first, so I believe that you you would be nice, but you wouldn't say those things no. if, if, if you didn't mean them. You no, would, you, would uh, you would find a polite way to blow smoke, but it wouldn't be that. So I, I appreciate that. I could have stopped after congrats on finishing the <laughs> <Right>. book. <laughs> That's great. It's a, it's a nice looking book. Yeah, it's, good it's job. Thick. I like the artwork. Full of words. Cover. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Um, but I mean, really, what I because I, I know that this is a topic that people approach with a lot of. Um, Approbation. I mean, just uh, like people are, are intimidated by, by the concept of, of game theory. So the, the idea that you found it like approachable and I mean, that that is the highest compliment that, that you could get because that was really what I was was struggling with was how can I render this? Um, I mean, it's it's not a super technical, but like, there's, there's other places where you could get way more into the weeds of like the details of game theory. That's not what this book is about. It's about, you know, helping people who are intimidated by it, um, but interested in it, or I guess 
I make the case for why you should be interested in it, even right. if you currently are not. Um, but you know, p people who are thinking like, oh, this is a daunting thing and it's got nothing to do with what I do. It's what those online players do or it's what those like elite players do. And I, I don't believe that that's true at all. I, I would even say, although it is about how to play better, obviously, even more than that, I think it's about how to think better. And, and this really relates to the earlier conversation about managing uh, emotions while, while playing poker, like not getting into into a bad streak or something. The more that you, I mean, the, like we used to talk about in the poker world, and, and you probably remember this too, there were like the feel players and the math players. Mm -hmm. No one is taken seriously as a feel player anymore. Anyone who said like, I'm a feel player would just be like left out of the room. Like that's the, the math players have just won. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the many problems with being a, a feel player is that your feel is so influenced by... I mean, A, just like short-term results, as, as I was saying before, and B, by what you want, which is not, like, poker doesn't care what you want. So, so many times people are like, well, I checked because I wanted to keep my opponent in the pot, or I checked because I wanted him to bet. I bet because I wanted him to fold. Poker does not care what you want. And to the extent that your opponents care what you want, it's so that they can do exactly the opposite. That's true. So, you you know, it, it can't just be about, I wanted this to happen, and so I tried to, to make, make it happen. happen. Right. Yeah. You, know, like you can't make things happen in poker. What you get instead is you're presented with a situation and in a, in a tournament that situation includes your current stack size so like i was saying it's not what stack do i wish i had what did like, i used to have what do i feel like having yeah. you have the stack that you have and That's your opponents it. have the stacks that they have and the payouts of the tournament are what they are and the two cards that you were dealt are what they are and the cards on the flop are what they are and game theory is about how do you take in that data and make the decision that has the highest expected value and, you know, many times the highest expected value is zero. And that means you fold your hand, you know. And so, you like, one common question that people ask you know, all the time is, well, what do you do if you get a bad run of cards? You're just not getting dealt any hands. How, you know, well, you fold. Like, that's, <laughs> it's easy. I mean, uh, for me, like, a thing that I used to do, some people may have heard me talk about this before, but um, I, there was a phase where I really wanted to get out of the mindset of, Judging my success in a set, I mean, this is for cash game, but I think it works for tournaments also. Judging my success based on whether or not I won money. You know, it, even in a cash game session, it's not a particular, like, it's easy to play well and have a losing night. It's of easy course. to be the best player at the table and have a losing night. Sure. And even more so in tournaments, obviously. Like, you know, often you will play well and not cash. So you really don't want to judge was this determined a success or not based on whether or not you make money. So what I was doing, I, I put an app on my phone. I think it was called Click Counter, but it was a, you know, just, it had just, it was a counter. You know, and you, if you hit volume up, it increased the count by one. And if you had volume down, it decreased the count by one. So every time that I played a hand, I felt as well as I could have played it, I gave myself a plus one. And the only time I gave myself a negative one, I would pick a single topic for a session. So like, I really want to be focused on value betting well. And so anytime that I thought I missed a value bet or made a smaller bet than I should have, if I made a mistake related to value betting, I gave myself a negative one. Otherwise, if I, if I you know, wasn't sure that I'd played a hand as well as I could have, or even if I was sure that I didn't, but it was a mistake that had nothing to do with value betting, it was just a, a zero. That's an interesting app. Is that for blackjack? For card counting or something? I mean, you could use it for counting use laps for when you're jogging or sure. I mean, just, what, it's just a, it's a counter. Just counting whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you would, you could, you could do it with hash marks on a piece of paper uh -huh. if you wanted to. Yeah. So I was just trying to see, you know, how many hands 
like how, essentially, you know, if I assume I'm playing about thirty hands an hour, you know, for this like my hourly. What I'm really trying to do is like consistently get like in the high twenties sure. per hour. And so then when I'm getting dealt seven deuce offsuit under the gun, all of a sudden that's an easy plus one. Like that's running good. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, yeah, I just I played that yeah. one perfectly. Folded yeah. pocket aces. That's a tough one to get a. It's tough to get a plus one on pocket aces. There's right. lots of ways to go wrong there. But <laughs> seven deuce offsuit under the gun, easy plus one. And so for you, kind of having a personal reward system like kind of a game within a game you know like you you joke a lot on twitter about reaching a cookie level right which is the last break of the day the joke is that i eat the cookies whether i get to that level or not. <laughs> you just don't see the picture on right, twitter. <laughs> right. yeah yeah um so you find that it helps you stay motivated if you kind of um have a game that you play where you're you competing against yourself in that game right yeah and it, it's setting a goal that is more in line with what i'm actually trying to accomplish so i mean i guess i would argue when you sit down to play poker in some sense the goal is not to win or to have a winning i mean it depends what you mean by win i guess but like the goal is not necessarily even even in a cash game session i'm not sitting down saying you know whether or not tonight is a success is going to be based on whether or not I leave the casino with more money than I came with. So in that, I mean, obviously my, my goal is to win in some sense, but like I'm like, it is a measurable metric. That's not the most important metric to, to, to judge. Now, win rate over a long period of time is an important metric. Zoom out, like you said before, zoom out and look at that later. Yes, yeah. if you can look at a, a big sample, but you know, but even something like um, percentage of winning sessions, I don't think that's an important metric, and that's one people ask me about a lot. You know, what percentage of my sessions should be winning? Like, I don't. What do you care? Like, yeah. <laughs> you could have lots of small losses and occasional big wins, and that could be a profitable year. You know, you know, like I had that big score last year, <clears throat> and I had several other much smaller caches last year mm -hmm. but honestly who cares because that one was so big it, it just dwarfed everything else i had done all year right so it, and, and that's really the nature of tournaments yeah and if i had played 80 tournaments last year i didn't but say that had been the only cash which it wasn't but if you cash one time out of 80 people would say man you must be terrible at poker and i'll say yeah but i won a quarter million dollars <laughs> And, and, and people, yeah. people set these crazy goals for themselves in, in tournaments. And I mean, this is, I, I guess, uh, I won't name names, but uh, there are some pretty well-known successful poker players who will say things like, you know, my goal for the main event is to have 100 big blinds at the end of every level. That strikes me as just a completely meaningless goal. It's a ridiculous goal. Like, I, I think a goal should, should drive your behavior in some way. A, a goal should tell you what to do. And... There's there, there shouldn't be a time like there, there's five minutes left in a level and you have 97 big blinds. I feel like you know does that mean that you should just raise the next no matter what your cards are get when three it more. falls in your yeah. middle position so you can steal the blinds and annies and get up to a hundred? I mean like that I think that's that would, so silly. If yeah. that really were your goal, that would be like the logical consequence of that. But I don't think that's good. Right. I, mean, I think like, I I try to approach poker and, and and sort of what the book encourages also. I think of it. Ideally, I should say this is all ideal. Like I'm mm -hmm. not, a, I'm not, not actually a, a perfect robot in this right. way. But ideally, I think you want to do it like you're doing a crossword puzzle or something. It's, it's a puzzle. There's a right answer to how to play this hand, and one of the factors in that is assumptions about how your opponent's going to play. If you're comfortable doing that, and so this is where like the game theory and the exploitative stuff meet is. 
I'm going to try to solve first if I if I were not making any assumptions about my opponent, what would be what what is the most plus EV way of playing this hand? And then if I want to add on that extra layer of now I'm going to make some assumptions about my opponent and say I think he doesn't bluff enough. I think he folds too much. I think he's going to check raise too much on the turn. Whatever it is, like then I can I, I can do a new EV calculation considering that. And again, my, my goal is find the most profitable option. If the most profitable option is fold, then you know, then that's what I'm going to do. And that's the way that I can at least, you know, not losing chips is, is the same as winning chips. So I think that anytime that you're in the mindset of, you know, I, I need to do such and such, I need to have more chips than I need to have now, I think that can, can only lead to bad things. Yeah, I mean, when I sit down to play, in the back of my mind, I think, it would be nice to win a bracelet today. <laughs> I would prefer to claim a large prize yeah. in this event, but you know, my mindset and my goal and the way I approach the game is I just try to make plays that I think have a positive expectation. And I know if I do that enough, especially in the important spots, I'll have a good chance of ending up, you know, accomplishing that other quote-unquote goal anyway mm. and i can only do my best and there's so much luck day to day that having some idea that i should have 100 big blinds every level yeah i agree that would only cause me to play way too aggressively and in spots where doing so is not profitable mm. so yeah that's ridiculous well, why don't we take a look at a hand or two? Actually, can I put oh, yeah, something please. on Tournament Poker Edge? Because no, I, I have a series on TPE that actually talks about this, and it's probably a good... I mean, the, the book will make perfect sense without watching this series on, on TPE, but for folks... Um, I mean, if you have a TPE subscription, I would say go ahead and watch this video series before you look at the book. Because the book, I don't, I mean, I explain what expected value is. I don't go really deep into the concept of expected value. And I think for a fair number of tournament players, especially, they're not that accustomed to thinking in terms of expected value. And uh, so I have a series on Tournament Poker Edge called Getting Off on the Right Foot, which is also about how do I think you should think about poker. And I try to go through and it, it is theory. I mean, it, it's not as like mathematically. Rig I don't know if I ever use the term game theory, but it's it's informed by game theory. It's written for people. Well, so it, it's designed to be accessible for people who are new to poker. I think if you are new to Tournament Poker Edge, or you know maybe you're going to sign up for Tournament Poker Edge as a result of listening to this, TournamentPokerEdge.com. Um, it would be a great place to start getting off on the right foot. But I think there's plenty of, you know, even professionals, let alone, you know, experienced recreational players or whatever who, who don't think in these terms and, and should. But it's really just about how to think in terms of expected value and kind of like what we talked about today, it refutes what I think are some of the mistakes that people make when they're thinking about the, the wrong thing or they're framing a problem in the right way. My experience with coaching is it's not so much telling students answers it's helping them frame the problem in the right way and once they do that they can usually find the answers for themselves like a lot of my coaching is asking someone a question that they haven't thought to ask themselves and once i do that they'll arrive at the right way to play the hand and then over time they learn okay these are the questions i should be asking myself when i'm playing not what do i hope my opponent does not how many chips do i want to have at the end of this hand you know what are the questions i should actually be asking myself and so that series getting off on the right foot i think is a good introduction to that yeah so a recurring theme of this podcast episode is <laughs> stop worrying about what you want and don't think in terms of this is what i want to happen or what i want my opponent to do 
what I'd like, you know, how much I want to win, <laughs> how much, how many chips I want to have at the end of each yeah. level is all silly. Right. Uh, it does. It's, it's you focus on what you can control. You yeah. can only control what you can control. So, uh, but yeah, I think you do kind of get into some weird, like spirituality kind of things with people like, oh, if I have the positive mindset and I'm putting into the universe that positive outcomes, pieces of plastic don't care about your stupid right. feelings. All right. That's just not life. So, uh, well, let's see if we can get you some uh, clicks on your click counter in the up direction. Uh, do you have any hands? I, I, uh, I have a hand from, from yesterday, actually. Oh, great. This was, uh, I mean, as you say, I, I did end up bagging yesterday, right. but especially at the start of this tournament, I was still feeling like, how does this shit keep happening? Like, <laughs> so uh, that we're still, we're, we're really, it's the 100-200 level so this it's a one thousand dollar buy-in right. uh it's got two starting days uh and it's a double stack so normally in a 1k at the wsip this year you would get twenty thousand in chips i guess and so <laughs> this is a double 40. stack because they're giving you 40 so the blinds are very small compared to the mm -hmm. to the starting stack so go ahead so we're at the 100-200 level, and the way that the WSOP is doing things is if you buy a seat in advance, they put your stack on the table from the beginning, and whenever you show up to claim your stack, you can start playing it, but you're getting blinded off all along. So there's several stacks at our table in this but you know they're they're getting they're getting blinded off. There's maybe five people actually at the table, two or three stacks getting blinded off, and you know two or three one or two empty seats that haven't been claimed yet. And not that long ago. Everyone who bought in late to a tournament, who, who sat late at a tournament, whether they bought in the night before or that day, had lost some chips as a result of not being there at the beginning right. of the tournament. This is only something they changed in the last, I guess, four or five years, um, which really encourages people to show up late. <laughs> I yeah. Think. Um, I started to say something about that. But I don't think that's a tangent we want to <laughs> okay, go on. Yeah, right yeah now. that's not good. But happen. yeah, so there's, there's people getting blinded off. And as you might expect, like when the big blind is one of those stacks, right? There's no one there to defend the big blind. It's a lot of incentive for someone to try. Like you can raise a much wider range. So, I mean, what ends up happening? It, it folds to the player in the hijack, and you know the hijack means something very different when there's no big blind. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Like when we talk about a position like button cutoff hijack, what we're really talking about is how many players are there behind you who could potentially wake up with strong hands. You know, that that's the reason you can raise more hands from late position is the chances of someone behind you having a good hand are lower. And so you can lower your threshold for how good does my hand need to be to raise. And all things being equal, the big blind is the most likely yes. player to defend because he's getting a better price. A much better price. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because he's closing the actions. Like sure. when you're the button, if you call a raise, you still have to worry about what if the small blind or the big blind wakes Right, it could be a squeeze or whatever exactly. behind me. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it, it, it folds to the hijack. He's new to the table. Um, he doesn't look like a recreational player, but you know, most people who are playing WSOP events are at least, I'm sorry, he doesn't look like a professional player, mm -hmm. but most people playing WSOP events are at least experienced poker players. I mean, you get people who are like brand new, but you get a fair number of people who at least like know their way around a poker sure. table. And like, so I think he probably understands the concept of there's no big blind there, I can raise more hands. You know, if, he might even take that too far. Right. Um, I, in my experience, uh, most players take that yes, too far. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they go after that 200 like it's the grand prize. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So he opens with a raise to 500. I'm in the cutoff and I have pocket tens. Okay. So is there an ante too? No. Okay. So it's just 100, 200 with no ante. He opens to 500 from the hijack mm -hmm. and you're cutoff. in the cutoff with tens. Okay. I mean, I, 
I think this is a three bet. Yeah, it's a slam dunk three. I mean, even, this is a three bet, even if the big line wins. Even the big <laughs> there looking like he wants to play, I think tens is a three bet yeah. for sure here. Yeah. So I mean, it's like, and this is another spot where this player could easily, you know, go down to a rabbit hole of like, oh, he's just raising me because I'm raising because the big blind is so, like he could easily make a big mistake here. Yeah. And I mean, the way this has come back to game theory again, like said, so the way I'm going to. Res- deal with this situation i'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole of like well, what if he thinks that i think that he thinks that i think <laughs> right. that he's stealing where does it end i'm just i'm going to three bet more than i usually would in this situation but not 100 percent. you know I'm, I'm just going to widen my range i have a sense of what are the hands i would usually three bet cut off versus hijack and i'm going to go a little wider with yeah. that and it's not it, those hands aren't random right i'm thinking about what are the best hands that i would fold if the big blind were there you know, so maybe I'm ordinarily three betting like ace nine suited plus and jack ten suited plus, and so I so mean maybe I'll add all the suited aces in there and I'll throw in jack nine suit. I'll expand that range out a little bit, but not drastically. Anyway, pocket tens is, is like way at the top. If we think about, it, I might be three betting something like fifteen percent of hands here, and pocket tens is like a top three percent sure. hand. So yeah. this is like very you know, yeah, no brainer. Yeah, and and he could easily expect me to be really light here. So I'm I'm thrilled to see pocket tens. I make it sixteen hundred. And by the way, just something you said, really, just to touch on, he could easily expect you to be really light here. But you already told us that you will be a little lighter than usual, but you're not going to go too far with that. Right. So he's already probably making a false assumption about you. And that's right. And that's what you always want. Right. So if I if I if I actually were just three betting any two cards here, then I'd be playing right into his hands if he decided to assume that I were you know, being right. way too wide. He could easily take it the other way. He could say, oh, he knows it's going to look really suspicious if he three bets here, and so he's actually only going to three bet good hands. <laughs> right, he he right. could do that also. Right. And that's why I'm not, you know, that's why I'm expanding my three bet range somewhat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, there, there's, it's, I'm trying to avoid being exploitable one way or the other. Right. I don't want to be exploitable by someone who assumes I'm just full of it and four bets 100%. And I don't want to be exploitable by someone who gives me way too much credit. Right. Um, so I, but either way, you know, there's just a lot of reasons to three bet tens. So I three bet tens, make it 1600, comes back to him, he calls. Okay. I like your sizing. I like building a pot in position, which, which is most, what is most likely to be the best hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, all of this is great. This is what we want to do early in tournaments, play in position with superior hands against inferior opponents. And then the part we can't control is hit good flops. <laughs> yeah, and, and let me say generate fold equity. So, mm-hmm. you know, like one of the merits of three betting this, like if he, I mean, he may call with some hands that I'm really dominating. Like he'll, I'm sure he'll call with like nines and eights. Um, he'll also fold some hands I probably want him to fold. Like mm-hmm. he'll, if he has like, uh, I don't know, King Jack offsuit, there's some chance he'll fold that. That's and fine with if us. He, if he calls yeah. with it, that's not the end of the world. If he folds it, that's very welcome. You know, even though I'm slightly ahead of that hand, I'd rather him fold than call it. So, you know, like, because I, I think this is a, an error people run into here sometimes is they think, oh, I have a good hand, I should trap. Right. And A, I want to play a large pot when I have a big hand, especially when we're 200 big blinds deep. I don't, you know, I want to be making the pot larger. That's the trap is like get him to put 1,600 chips in pre-flop, getting him to put in 500 pre-flop. He's out, those are already in there. Like right. that's not a trap. Um, and, and B, there are some hands that I want him to fold. Like I don't strictly want, uh, you know, I, I benefit from his folds as well. And of course we're calling a four bet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, that would be a, a tough decision if the big blind weren't there. Or sorry, if the big line were there, you know, and, and if both of our ranges were a little tighter, that would be a, a, 
a tough spot if he forbet us. I think in this scenario where there's some reason to believe he might think that, you know, again, I'm just, I'm going to expand my range a little bit. So like maybe Queens is usually the hand that I'd be, you know, sort of my threshold for being like, oh, I feel pretty good about the fact that he just forbet me. Mm-hmm. But now I'm expanding that a little bit because both of us have some incentive to widen our ranges. So now 10s is the hand where I'm going to feel pretty good about it. I'm still, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not five betting, but I'm like right. calling and I'm going to, you know, we'll have to see what the flop looks like. Are you five betting with Queens? Yes. In, yeah. the, in this scenario, yes. But if, not jacks. Not jacks. Jacks and tens are calls, and queens and up is a, is another raise. Okay. Yeah. And and if, if the big blind were there, I probably would not five bet queens. Right. I, I wouldn't want to put 200 big blinds in with queens. Yeah. But in this scenario, I think I could. Agreed. Okay. I like it. Pre-flop is all good. So. He calls, and I did get a really nice flop. Flop was jack, ten, five, rainbow. That's one of my favorite flops for pocket tens. Yes. So we have uh, 32 plus 3, 3,500 in the pot. And now we flop middle set. Jack, ten, five. Mm -hmm. And he checks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So before you say what you did, uh, I generally bet big in these spots because I want to get action from worse hands and I think there are a lot of worse hands that will give me action. Uh, Ace-King, Ace-Queen, King-Queen obviously, all of those like two big cards kind of hands like this flop. Mm-hmm. Um, I also don't think that there's anything a small bet can do that a big bet can't do better here. In other words, if I bet like half the pot, he's not going to call me with, if he has nothing, generally, he's probably going to fold most of his nothing. And when he has something, he's probably going to call a bigger bet as much as he would call a smaller bet. So, I mean, I don't know if that's exactly balanced. Like if I would bet really big with, if I had the king-queen myself, I don't know, probably should just in order to be unexploitable and balanced. But this is one of those spots where, practically speaking, I would just play an exploitable strategy of betting bigger when I have something as strong as a set here. Mm-hmm. And so, what would big look like with thirty-five hundred in the pot? I mean, I would probably put in like three thousand. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I th- I think there there could well be a case for that. I think um, so. I, I ended up betting fifteen hundred. I don't necessarily feel strongly that that's better one of the merits i thought of betting 1500 is it invites him to go down that rabbit hole of kind of like thinking that we're full of it and and some there there was a little bit of profiling going on here that i haven't gotten into but based on on what this guy looked like i thought he might be a little more gambly and also a little more ego driven than than some players so that that was kind of playing in my decision a little bit of wanting to wanting to provoke him a little bit like wanting to make a bet that he would feel insulted by or something where you know he he so the, the one thing that I think a small bet could do better than a large bet is provoke him to do something, whether it's a, a like frivolous call planning to bluff later or whether it's you know a check raise that he wouldn't usually make or something. That, I would say, is the one merit of, of the smaller And that bet. is something it does better that I did not think of before. If you feel like he's the type to try to pounce on, well, you raised 1600 before, now you're only betting 1500 right. If you really feel like, if your read on him is that he's the type to pounce on what looks like a quote-unquote weak bet. I, I would use the word hunch rather than read. He was very new to the table. Okay, so, was, so yeah, but you just, yeah. you're profiling, and right. that's a hunch, yeah. Then uh, then that is a, a case for the smaller bet. So we're betting and hoping 
to uh, get some action we might not other, otherwise get, especially of uh, the check raise variety. We are probably never check raising uh, my three thousand, right? Unless he has a set himself. And there's there's one. Other, I mean, this is is kind of a minor thing, but there there's a somewhat substantial blocking effect going on when I have pocket tens where it's kind of hard. I mean, he can hit the board in weak ways pretty easily. Like there's a lot of gut shots he can have. There's a lot of straight draws or just a lot of straight draws in general. He can have, he can have top pair. I'm not blocking that, but you know, I am, I'm blocking the board. I'm holding two of the most relevant cards on the board. So I think there's a little bit more of a case for making a large bet with aces or Kings where now there's three jacks and three tens that could be in his hand, uh, as opposed to in this case, there's only four of those, you know, board pairing cards that, that could be in his hand. So there's a little bit of a case for us slightly smaller bet when you have when you have the board like blocked in that way but um, I don't know that that really needs to drive the decision yeah but it's a good point um, yeah I'm not expecting to get action from a 10 when I bet 3,000 but I'm also obviously not expecting him to have a 10 very often since I know where three of them are yeah that's fair yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I bet 1,500 he calls and the turn is a king Okay. So, uh, Jack 10, 5, King now is the board. Okay. So I would certainly put Ace Queen into our opponent's range mm -hmm. uh, on the flop. And I think Ace Queen would often call my 3,000 as well. Actually, maybe I'm wrong, but I think you know, two over cards and a gut shot. I, I, think, I think that's very player dependent. I think some people are going to look at that and see a gut shot and say, I'm not calling 3,000 with a gut shot. Other people are going to look at it and see Ace Queen might be the best hand. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was sometimes. I yeah. Guess. I, mean, I, I think it should call. I mean, I, yeah. I would I would not be folding Ace Queen. Like you said, you could have King Queen. Right. I mean, it, it could be the best hand. The Aces and Queens could be live. There's lots of reasons to call or to raise Ace Queen. But, right. Which kind of makes me like the 3K on the flop yeah. more. Um, but if I had bet 3K on the flop and then <laughs> the king king hit, I mean, we do have to fear uh, potential ace-queen here. But that said, I don't think that playing worried about the nuts all the time is healthy either. Mm -hmm. um, the king could also have given our opponent two pair with something like king-jack. Mm -hmm. um, so all in all, I still like the board. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not the card I was hoping for, right. but we still have a very strong very hand, strong hand relative yeah. to him. So, I mean, ace-queen could be in his range. We also have to consider that we could have ace-queen. Yeah. We could have pocket kings. Like, so pocket tens has gotten a little bit weaker relative to our range. You know, it was previously in the top, like, 3% of our range. Maybe now it's the top 6 or 7% of our range. And the implication, this mostly just has implications for bet sizing, which is that, uh, and, and this is another topic that I, I get into my book to some degree, is um, when the, like, the, the, the risk of getting bluffed is what gives your opponent incentive to put money in the pot with hands that are not the nuts. Right? So, you know, what we need to do, it's like, the simple fact that he could have ace-queen, as you say, is, doesn't tell us whether or not we should bet with pocket tens. The question is, could he have enough hands that aren't ace-queen to compensate us for the times we run into ace-queen? Like, we need to be good more than 50% of the time that we're putting money in the pot right. for it to make sense to put money in the pot. So we know there's potentially 16 combinations. Like, I think it's reasonable to think he would just always play this way with ace-queen. Like, he yeah. never four-bets pre-flop, he never folds pre-flop, he never folds the flop. He might just have 16 combinations of ace-queen in his range. So we need to make sure that... Um, like if we if we bet if we were to bet too large if we were to bet so large that he could just fold everything except ace queen and our bluffs wouldn't be profitable 
that would be a problem for us. Right, because then we're owning ourselves. Exactly. We're, right. we're, making it easy, we're giving him an easy strategy, which is just play the nuts. But, it, I mean, in this scenario, I think his range is wide enough that, you know, that bet size would be like 3x pot or something before, they, like he, before he can play a strategy of only play the for nuts. For sure. So yeah. I, think, like, I think we can still even make large bets in this situation. And he's still, especially given how easily we could actually have bluffs here. You know, like there are some hand. Like I would have three bet like eight seven suited, nine eight suited, and that's the kind of hand I'd be potentially blasting away with on this turn. I think even stuff like queen ten suited, queen jack suited, I might you know bet here as a sort of yeah. Those hands have plenty of equity to semi bluff. Yeah. Um, So I mean, I I think there's a lot of ways that that we could be bluffing in this situation, and and that's going to give him incentive to pay off even a somewhat large bet with a hand that's not as good as tens. Okay, so there's 6,500 in the pot on the turn, mm-hmm. and he checks. Mm-hmm. Um, and suits don't matter here? Yeah, I don't even right. remember if the pair okay. put up a flush draw, but I don't think it was a terribly relevant part of the hand. All right. So, yeah, uh, we have 6,500 in the pot and, what, 35,000 behind or something? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would bet pretty big here, maybe like forty-five. Mm-hmm. I bet five. Then, okay. Yeah, same. Yeah, and does he raise? No. Okay. I if, if he, had, I mean, I was hoping he would check raise all in. Like, I think my hand is that good that even if he, even if he check raises, I can still because I mean we have equity against Ace Queen also. It's not like we're drawing dead. That's true. Because, good point. Yeah, we have ten outs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know he could have pocket fives. He, like we might have him smashed. He might have king queen and be going for it. He might have king jack. King he jack, might, sure. Know, queen jack, and he's trying to you know get us off of ace king or something. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's lots of reasons we could feel good about you know even if he did check raise, but he right. doesn't. He just calls. So this is a spot where you know the king really hurt how close we are to the nuts, but we're still not slowing down and worrying about monsters under the bed. Mm-hmm. Ace queen is 16 combinations of. All the hands that are in his range that for checking and calling a flop, and I think because we bet so small on the flop, he has a lot of hands that check and call the flop, and so those sixteen combinations of ace queen are not even ten percent of all the combinations of everything, mm-hmm. right? So therefore, he's unlikely to have ace queen relative to his total range, right? And I would say what's happened on the turn is had the turn been a blank, you know, say the turn is a three. I would expect to be good, you know, ninety to ninety-five percent of the time that a turn bet is called. What's happened on a king turn instead is I expect to be good maybe seventy percent of the time. Yeah, it went down a little. It went down a substantial amount, but still, you know, we want to make the largest bet that we can. Like seventy percent of five thousand is a lot more than seventy percent of three thousand. Exactly. I think one mistake that people make is they modulate the size of their bet to the or they correlate it with the strength of their hand, and so they bet more when they have strong hands and less when they have weak hands. And if you think that's actually going to change your opponent's calling range, that can be good. Like, if when you have weaker hands, you need to get called by weaker hands to make the value bet profitable. But if you think that his calling range, I mean, you still want to make the highest EV bet. And it can't just be, well, I'm afraid of running into the nut, so I didn't make as large of a bet. Like, you know, if you're going to win 70% of the time, you're pretty happy to put money in the pot. And that was the situation that I was in here. For sure. And so here we, uh, we bet kind of small on the flop. We bet really big on the turn. And he calls again. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm liking this situation. Yeah, so what's I feel good about it. Yeah. Uh, the river's an eight. Okay, so with 16,500 in the pot, the final board is jack-10, five, king, eight. Correct. So that eight changes almost nothing. What got there? Nine, seven got there? Yeah, which yeah, is pretty unlikely. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty good brick. 
Uh, so the question, he checks again? No. Oh, okay. So now he, he wakes up. He, yeah, and so your, your assumption that he would check again is reasonable. I think there's a good chance if we were analyzing this in, say, PyoSolver, it would not have a Always check. Always check. Yeah. Essentially, what it's going to do is if it, if it were going to donk a blank river, any hand that would play that way would, would play better as a turn check raise. A turn check raise. So it's never going to dunk the, this river. There might be like a river that changed the texture of the board, a board pairing river, an ace, something like that. It might have a dunk betting range on, on that kind of river card. But if the board texture doesn't change, any hand that would want to dunk would have rather just check raise the turn. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I didn't really think that he should be checking ever. So, yeah, betting, betting ever. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. Yeah. So immediately it's like surprising, and yeah. it's a big bet. He bets fifteen k. Okay. So this is a disgusting spot to say the least. Um, it's either a straight or a bluff, in my opinion. I don't think too many players of this profile you're mentioning are. Are value betting worse than three tens? Yes. Right. So outside, they, I mean, maybe pocket fives. He's or river three eights somehow. Yeah. yeah if, he, just, if he really was, I mean, that requires him to be a pretty yeah, arrow on the turn. Yeah. So I mean, but I think even with pocket fives, he has to fear the ace queen. Yes. And, and higher set. I mean, there's a lot for him to be afraid and, of. Yeah, and of course, the hand you have, yeah. he has to fear with fives. So uh, I think this is a. You know, kick in the stomach. And in these spots, I generally rely on, on you know, as we joked before about field players. Mm -hmm. But if unless I really have a strong sense that he's bluffing, I just throw it away. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a profitable call unless he's bluffing too often, which is a weird, like what hand does he have that he's bluffing with? Um, th that called the turn. It just doesn't, it's hard for me to come up with very many bluffs when I already think he should never lead the river anyway. Right. And so if he's going to lead the river, he needs to have some bluffs. Right. It just seems like in these kind of tournaments against this kind of player, uh, it's it, it hurts because your hand was so strong and, you know, go home and cry to your mother. But <laughs> I think we have to fold. And my mother doesn't play poker. <laughs> so I don't have this option. My mom will give me a big hug and be like, we've all been there. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and I think the 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 math of bluff catching actually is is one of the things that I talk about in play optimal poker, but I and, and also actually in the video series that I mentioned, um, getting off on the right foot. The the mistake that a lot of people make in this situation is they just say he could be bluffing, so I call. That's mistake one. Um, that's bad on a number of levels. <laughs> So first off, like in order to, to for him, like he needs to be bluffing 30, disproportionately much. Thirty percent of the time. Yeah, I mean, if, if we if we called it a pot size bet, which it isn't quite, but yeah. if we call it a pot size bet, we would break even if he has a better hand than us two thirds of the time, and he's bluffing one third of the time. Calling would be break even, yeah. meaning it would be no better than folding. Right? E either way, expected value zero. If you're playing against David Peters in a three hundred thousand dollar buy-in, he might have a bluff in his range. 
here that's going to be you know profitable to call or something. Well, but that's that's the key. So even if he's doing a thirty three percent, it's not profitable. Profitable. It's just, it's break just even. no better than yeah, this it's is no worse fold. than folding. Yeah. So that's the first mistake. People just say, well, he could be bluffing. So mistake A is that completely ignores the math of bluff catching. It's not enough to just say he could be bluffing. Therefore, I call. He has to be bluffing disproportionately much. You know, yeah, out and, of proportion to the value hands that he could have. And to your point, Andrew, if he bets five thousand or something on the river. You might get five thousand more from me doing that, even though it's hard for me to put him on a bluff. It's hard for me to think of a bluff he could even have. Uh, you know, most of his hands they call the turn are like a pair that's now turning itself into a bluff, even though it's not a scary river. It right. it, it doesn't make any sense, but you're giving me four to one or something, so maybe I would call like a curious call and then regret it because if he if if he bets. If his bet gives me four to one, then I'm profiting if he's only bluffing, you know, twenty one percent of the time, right? right. So we're just doing something weird. Like, something weird. Sometimes yeah. they just they don't even know why they're betting, you know. And I think that you see that more commonly with small bets, though. Like the the, the bigger the bet, yeah, yeah, it's just a serious bet. I mean, it's, it's, right. just, it's, it's half a starting stack almost. I mean, it's just like you said. A lot of people don't want to like recreational players don't want to lose big pots in level. I mean, for him, this is level one. He just yeah. got here. Yeah, I mean, the real question to me, I mean, the way I approach a river bluff is how often do I think he's bluffing, and then compare that. With the pot size. Well, and the other thing you were doing, which which is good, which which gets at the the second error that I think a lot of people make is even if you recognize the, the like math behind bluffing, you're talking about what specific hands could he be bluffing with? What does he have? Yeah, right. Because a big mistake a lot of people make is they just say he could be bluffing, but they don't like a bluff is not a hand. Right? People bluff <laughs> one with two cards. Right. You have to think about what hand could he get to the river with that he would want to bluff with. He check call 5,000 on 4th Street. Exactly. Yeah. There's no draw that missed. No. You know, I mean, you could say, what if he, so on the, on the turn, there's King Jack 10. So you could say, what if he just has a queen? Again, a queen is not a hand, right? <laughs> Ace, queen's a straight. King, queen's a pair. Queen, jack's a pair. Pocket, queen's is a pair. Queen, 10 is a pair. Queen, nine is a straight. Queen, eight is two pair on the river. Like, or, or sorry, queen, eight is a pair on the river. So like he has queen, seven. Why did he peel the flop with queen, seven? It like, doesn't make sense. If you actually think about what two card hands make sense for him, instead of just saying he could be bluffing and I can beat a bluff, then I think you start to see the case for folding here. Right, because if he has something like queen, 10, uh, yeah, he has a pair, and we know that he's almost never good with that pair of tens with a queen kicker. But still, players in general, especially in a thousand dollar buy-in, are reluctant to put in a big bluff when they have some type of showdown value. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can he? And it's be- not. I think I think he could beat things. I mean, I could. I. I mean, I was talking about I might barrel the turn with like right. You did. Nine, eight, some like, bluffs I'm gonna find bluffs on the turn. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like it's not impossible that he wins with a pair of tens. Yeah, I mean, your turn bet is polarized. To... If, if I'm coaching him and he says to me, you know, he's he's got queen 10, I think his play up to this point is unimpeachable, but betting the river would be a terrible idea. Yeah, firing <laughs> a pot size, almost a pot size bet on the river seems crazy. Yeah, if, if I've got queen 10 suited in his shoes, I'm playing it exactly the same way until the river and I'm jacking the river. And, and you're checking and then you're going to win sometimes and you're probably going to fold to a lot of big river bets. But I block ace queen. You do block ace queen. <laughs> I block pocket tens. So right. I'm gonna find the call. <laughs> if, if you check and Andrew puts in ten thousand, I think you should throw your queen ten away. <laughs> but uh, of course, Andrew is uh, GTO enough to have enough bluffs that either way, you'll be he'll be indifferent to whatever you do after <laughs> he bets ten k. Um, so yeah, I think we need to fold, mm-hmm. and 
there's a non-zero chance that he's bluffing, but because I'm having so much trouble coming up with what two cards he can even have to bluff, I know that chance, even though it is non-zero by definition, it's way less than 33%, right. which is our break-even point. So to me, this is a fold. And, and I think you know, to, to really boil this down, because I think some people are probably still, like, I think we've tried to keep the math simple, but I think there are probably still some people listening to this who are like, all this, you know, counting combinations and percentages right, and product, right. that's still kind of going over my head. So here's like a, a really easy tool tip, whatever, that you can use. It, before you call a bet on the river, think to yourself, what hands am I hoping to see? You know, just just articulate, a, and ideally more than one, like articulate a couple of hands that you think it makes sense that your opponent could play this way. You don't have to count combinations. You don't have to add up percentages. But at least say to yourself, what are a few hands he could plausibly play this way that I can beat? Force yourself to do that. And I think if you do, um, especially over time, you'll get better at finding some folds in situations where if you like probably a lot of people listening to this are just thinking oh i have a set if he has you know if he managed to beat me if he got a hand better than set like that's just bad luck it is bad luck but it's not an excuse for ignoring the information that that he's giving you and if you really want to be a top player you need to be able to make like above the rim plays you you know you, you need to like the way that you kind of experience less bad luck than other players, like you don't experience less bad luck. Like people flop sets against you exactly as often as they do against anyone else. <laughs> um, the, the way that you outperform other players is the consequences of your bad luck are lower because you manage to do above the rim things like finding a fold here with pocket tens. Um, and before I sound like I'm too high on myself here, I did not find a fault with. Oh no, Andrew, I was afraid. <laughs> so we were I'm not. I'm not bragging. Like this right. is when I when I'm at my best, I find a fault here with pocket tens. Um, I think this is it kind of brings things full circle to how do you play when you're running bad. One thing, kind of a discipline that I establish for myself. I do try not to do too much hero folding when I feel like I've been running bad because there's the danger of monsters under the bed yeah. kind of creeping in where you're just constantly like, oh, he probably just flopped a set again. He probably just flopped a set again. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do try to not make what I think would be exploitable folds as often when I'm running bad because I worry about that creeping in. Now, in this case, I think I took that too far. I think, you know, the, doing just like the logical analysis that we've talked about, I don't think this would be an exploitable fold to fold in the river, and I think that I should have folded it. Uh, but that was sort of my, to, to the extent that there was logic besides just, God damn it, I have 10s and I don't want to fold, <laughs> you know, um, that that was, was what it was, was just a, a combination of, I had initially framed this hand as like he's gonna think that I'm full of it and I actually have an extremely good hand here. Like that was kind of operating in the background of how I played mm -hmm. the entire hand was the idea that he was gonna think I'm full of it, which was an assumption I was making that may or may not have been correct. I mean, obviously if he has ace queen, he's gonna play a big pot. Like I have no idea whether he would have just done something spazzy here, but I don't think he would do it with exactly this line. Well, before you reveal his hand, Andrew, I want to talk about what <laughs> I think his check call turn and fire 15 into 16 five on the river ranges because i'm not even sure most players would do this with pocket jacks i think he's his most of his range is going to be straight i think i said that before though yeah yeah i just feel like he's going to turn over a straight yeah so much is that what he had yeah yeah ace queen, queen. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you know, we, the other thing we didn't explicitly mention, like, there's definitely some Queen Nine in his range. Yeah, Queen, uh, Queen, Queen Nine suited yeah. at least. I mean, he may sure. not call the three about Queen Nine offsuit, but like Queen Nine suited is is probably in his range. Yeah, like, no, a I few was, more straights that we lose. Too. You're right. We didn't explicitly say Queen Nine, um, but Queen Nine's open ended on the flop. Yeah, and Ace Queen is a two over cards gut shot, mm-hmm. so it's actually. And on some level, Queen Nine is a better hand on the flop to yeah. check and call. Um, and also, many times if we open from the hijack with a Queen Nine and somebody three bets big, as you did, we throw our Queen Nines away. But because the big blind was absent, I think right. there's, there's a the lot more calling. FOS with dynamic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I like that the FOS, <laughs> the coefficient of FOS uh, <laughs> definitely factored in there. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry that. Uh, he got you like that. That's, yeah, it's a very strange way for him to play his hand. I mean, had he checked the river, I think you're betting again. I was planning to bet again yeah, yeah. when I assumed he was going to check the river. And then when and, he, and, checkers, and then when he shoves, I think we, yeah. So and, I guess I would have, I would have felt better about finding him. I would have found a fold there. Yeah, because yeah, the check raise on the river is just never a bluff there. I mean, that's. Shouldn't, I shouldn't use the word never, but it's as close to never as you'll find. There's a, I think it was from, from one of the interviews that we did on Thinking Poker with Ed Miller, where he said something like, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I overfold river check raises. Nobody, nobody check raises the river often enough as a yeah. bluff. And if you're listening to this and you want to try to follow me around Las Vegas and exploit me by check raise bluffing <laughs> the river, like, come at me, bro. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I do it too much, but I think it's just because I get greedy. Like when I think my opponent... Is uh, a uh, there are certain player profiles where they're mostly you know very hard studying professional like TPE subscribers and the like people that really like to you know, go deep into their poker and they kick themselves when they uh, don't get enough value for their hands they they kind of overemphasize the importance of accumulating value for every every pair they ever have they want to make sure they if there's a value bet to be made on the river they make it. So if I'm up against an opponent like that, I tend to check raise bluff the, that opponent a lot more yes. on the river, just because he's going to have so a much wider river bluff, uh, betting range than other players. Like he might be bluffing me sometimes. When you check raise bluff a bluffer, that's always fun. And, and this is why most people don't check raise bluff the river very much. Is most people also don't thin value bet the river, and most people don't bluff the river as much as they should because so, they can just check and win. Exactly. Yeah. So you know if and. I mean, I find it helpful to think about, especially when you're dealing with recreational players who mostly play in a single room, right? I mean, it's an ecosystem. Right. And evolution is at work. And there, I mean, really, like, people are adapting strategies and counter strategies, trying to take advantage of each other. They're not necessarily doing it consciously, you know, so they're not thinking in terms of, my opponents don't thin value bet the river, and I exploit that by not check-raise bluffing them. But they're doing it more through trial and error, but, like, over time, the players who survive for for several years and, and, you know, thrive playing 2-5 no limit or whatever at their local card room have learned, do not check-raise bluff the river. And the reason you don't check-raise bluff the river is that, People just they have always it call. Too <laughs> they always call because they always have. They have, it, they have right. good hands. Like right. people only bet good hands on the river. Or they they really disproportionately bet good hands on the river, and they're reluctant to hear a fold. Like even if you're representing something better than the good hand that they're betting, like you know they there's a pair of eights on the board, and they bet the river, and you check raise all in. Like you're kind of repping that you have a full house, but like a lot of people just don't want to fold trips. So yeah, they don't hear a fold, and they don't they don't make thin enough value bets. They don't bluff enough. Like there's good reasons why people have learned 
don't check race bluff to the river. And this is, again, like another throwback. <laughs> um, like, this is why I think understanding game theory is useful because the way most people learn poker is they learn through this like trial and error process and they learn to beat a specific sort of opponent. Right? So maybe they play one, two, and they learn to beat one, two players. And a rule that they learn for themselves is fold when my opponent makes big bets on the river because one, two players often you know, just have it too much when they do that. And they learn. If you can beat top pair, put your stack in because most of their one-two opponents will overplay a top pair when they have it. And they think that's what winning poker looks like. What it actually is is an exploitative strategy designed to take advantage of specific mistakes that they encounter in their ecosystem. And the problem they run into is they move up to 2-5, and 2-5 is mostly populated by people who learn to beat one-two. And so they're playing they've learned all those same things. They don't pay off big river bets. They don't stack off with top pair. And the best players uh, adapt to that. And they realize, okay, against these players, I want to make big bluffs on the river because they don't pay off big river bets. And I want to fold top pair a lot because they just have it when they're shoveling a lot of money into the pot. And then like 510 is people who have learned those rules. So at some point, you have to be able to separate out what is fundamental poker strategy, like what actually has a mathematical theoretical grounding behind it, and what is stuff that works against a certain sort of opponent and not against another so that you can make an intelligent decision about am i doing this for a good reason like because i'm 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 making an assumption about an opponent and i believe i'm i'm confident like you say betting on that assumption or am i just doing this because it's familiar to me and it's what i've always done and i think that latter gets people into trouble when they play in an unfamiliar environment whether that it could be coming to las vegas and playing in tournaments against tougher players than they're used to that comes up a lot yeah because they're used to what works at home yeah. wherever they play in like you say in one room all the time and they play with people who don't make those same mistakes and then they're lost yeah and so they don't know what to do when they're in uh different unfamiliar territory uncharted waters yeah. you know listening to you break that down the different e ecosystems in a local card room moving from one two to two five to five ten and hearing you articulate why people play the way they play is uh just a great example of something i knew on some level but i didn't really think of it in those terms before and these are the kind of moments that i have as i read your uh book and as i watch your videos on tpe and just when you and I go get a, a drink and we talk about poker is that you have a way of seeing the game and more importantly, being able to communicate aspects of the game that I thought I already knew, but then it's, it just becomes more clear to me from having spoken with you. So I'm honored and privileged to have uh, been able to spend this time with you today. How can people get your book if they want to uh, read it? If they want a paperback, Amazon is the place to go. Play Optimal Poker. Uh, search for that in the Amazon search bar, and, mm -hmm. and that'll come up. Um, for electronic versions, you have a couple of options. Uh, Kindle, um, obviously uh, Amazon. If you want a non-Kindle electronic version, which would be either an EPUB if you're going to try to read on um, like Google Books, Apple Books, if you have a Nook. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people still <laughs> If you have a Nook. <laughs> nice. Uh, we're, we're, we're Nook friendly. Yeah, that's um, good. Or if you want a PDF, knitcast.com. Uh, that's my like sort of personal sales site, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. And you can buy, if you buy the electronic version there, you'll get three versions. You'll get the one that works on Kindle, you'll get the one that works, uh, the, the EPUB, and you'll get the, the PDF. If you buy the electronic version on Amazon, you just get the, 
the Kindle one. No, the upside of doing it on Amazon is it gets transferred automatically to your Kindle. If you buy it from me, you have to you know transfer it onto there yourself. But and if they get the hard copy and they see you in Vegas, it would make my day to autograph. They get I, a picture, get an autograph. Yes, this this is like uh, I mean I I guess if you're like Tom Clancy, signing books gets old. Like <laughs> when you're Andrew Brokus, it's the best thing in the world. You're, like, no, you're not Tom Clancy. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, signing books is far from old. Right. Uh, it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Seeing picture, like it's really the best thing. Like Twitter, I always enjoy Twitter, but like the really the best thing on on Twitter is people sending me pictures of like, look, I got your book in the mail. Look, here's a picture of me with the book. People coming up with you to sign the book. Like it's just it's fantastic. Well, yes. what I'm gonna do is hold up. Uh, a nook <laughs> with the book open in my nook and get a picture of you that way. I would love it. Yeah. I guess you could find a nook. I don't know. You probably find it on eBay or something. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, and also definitely check out the, um, the video series that Andrew mentioned on Tournament Poker Edge, which is called Starting Off on the Right Foot. Getting, getting, off, getting off on the Right Foot. Getting Off on the Right Foot. Um, yeah, as we said before, if you're not a TPE member and you're just a podcast listener, you know, there is so much value that you can get for as little as $25 a month uh, to become a TPE member, subscriber, and, you know, come join us. Join us in the forums, watch the videos, and just be a part of the growing TPE community. So for Andrew Brokus and for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge. I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas plays. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. It isn't fun, fun Oh, whoa, 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 whoa.